everybody, and welcome to Ignite Radio Live. You are with Greg and Stephanie Schleter over the five mighty stations of Annunciation Radio for the Almighty. Folks, we really encourage you to go to IgniteRadioLive.com and peruse some of the very relevant, important conversations we've had over recent months, just to pique your appetite. The uh, wonderful Peter Herbeck last week showcased a bit of the uh, shape of the battle. Which of us don't feel a battle, feel a sense of the battle playing out in and around us, keeping it real? And he is just marvelous in articulating that with such relevance. So that's just one of the many programs that, you know, help us to understand the fog of war that is around us and within us. Let's just keep it real. We are sinners working it out. All of us here on this planet destined for God's glory, desiring to communicate that. That awaken hearts and minds, right? Ephesians 5, 14, awaken, O sleeper, rise from your death, let Christ's light shine on you. We just want to invite all who are listening to know that's where we're coming from tonight. We don't have, you know, we are hardly perfect. We're working it out, but we're not going to erase that high call that God has destined us for because we fall short. I'll state that Amen. again. There's Amen. a high call that God has destined us for that is the very nature of our beings, that we will not be satisfied until we seek it and pursue it. We're not going to erase that or presume to erase that because we fall short. Some people's that may be, sorry, a homosexual inclination. For others, maybe adultery. For others, maybe pornography. You know, there are many vices and sins. All of us have our own. I'm not going to presume to erase that because I struggle. So tonight, we're going to kind of continue that conversation, particularly in the shadow of the two conventions, the Democratic National Convention and the Republic National Convention. We really invite all who are listening to come with an open mind and an open heart to maybe set aside, if you will, our allegiances, our labels, our narratives that we become very comfortable with. And really kind of Frank Sheed's book, Theology and Sanity, he says, to see the world sanely is to see it God-bathed. I invite us all to have the audacity to look at our lives and the world around us as God-bathed. What is God's desire and design? And don't dismiss, if you will, um, because it's a mess. It's hardly on this side of things. Angelic with perfect, pure forms. The Republican Party, hardly. Not there. Democrats, I will say, certainly not there. But let's let's have the uh, maturity and wisdom tonight to look at things God-bathed and to recognize it is a bit of a mess. But the Messiah is in the mess. And we're called to go there. Read a catechism number 246. We are called as Catholic Christians to engage in this battle on this side of things in the political and social arena. So we're hoping to discuss that tonight in a folksy way. And we do invite you to contribute to the conversation. So again, Ignite Radio Live. So I'm going to set the stage by introducing, if you will, our two two brothers guests with us tonight. And uh, I couldn't be uh, more jubilant to have these wonderful men of God, both lawyers, don't hold that against them, uh, both of them just extraordinarily gifted. And I think on an international stage, they bring wisdom, insight, humility, pursuit of God. I've known them for a while, and my wife wants to add to this. (laughs) No, I mean, we couldn't think of two better people to join us for this conversation. The wisdom that they will bring, the grace that they will bring, just um, 
just delighted to have them. And they are. Jeff Barefoot was a political science major from Miami of Ohio, my alma mater, woohoo. He's an attorney, CPA, certified financial planner, and a founder of a local wealth management firm. Check it out, folks. If you want wisdom and godly wisdom, resourcement, check it out. Jeff Barefoot Resourcement. I highly recommend checking him out. Anyways, I continue. President of the Toledo Right for Life. He's a founding member and board vice president of the Right to Life Action Coalition of Ohio. By the way, read into that innumerable examples of his leadership that have seen tremendous effect for the benefit of unborn babies, their moms, and healing in this country. But that's what that title is packed into that title from my experience. And he was an initial board member of our Image Trinity Mass Impact Movement and continues to be a great advisor. Now we shift to another of our wonderful guests, Lee Strang. He's a professor of law at the University of Toledo. He is a Harvard Law graduate. Don't hold that again. Him, you know, he is uh, the, the the positive fruit that can come out of Ivy League schools. I'm saying this with a little smile on my face, so grant me a little fiat here. It might people. even be a big smile. Exactly, big smile. He uh, had a fellowship, the James Madison Fellowship, with Robbie George from Princeton, which was a you know a very I don't want to describe it elite uh, invitation and opportunity for very few on the planet, and he was uh, selected and included in that wonderful fellowship. And uh, his recent book which you should all check out. Originalism's Promise, a natural law account of the American Constitution. I'm going to say that again. Originalism's Promise, a natural law account of the American Constitution. Most consequentially, though, he is a husband and father with baby number eight due to be born any moment. So if he uh, if he cuts out any particular moment, you know, that is a very po- possible reason. Welcome, Lee. Welcome, Jeff. How are you guys doing? Great. Well, we're going to begin by setting the stage. I'm going to ask Jeff from innumerable conversations over breakfast, lunch, coffee, cigars, and scotch sometimes, just setting the stage for us, giving us insight of this moment in history in light of which we can understand this current moment. The election of Donald Trump was the greatest and most disrupting election since Abraham Lincoln's election in 1860. The parallels are quite similar. If you've ever been to the Abraham Lincoln Museum in Springfield, Illinois, you would see many newspapers published in the South of the vituperative hatred of Lincoln. Um, Mm. He was hated. He was despised. He was vilified. The South didn't just leave the United States. Uh, They left because they hated the election of Abraham Lincoln and would would not accept the results of that election. After, the, after his assassination, America was never the same. We entered 1860 as one nation. We came out in 1864 a different nation. This is where we're at today. Um, I did not support Donald Trump in the primaries. I was a Ted Cruz supporter. Mm. I met Donald Trump in um, the summer of 2015. I was mesmerized. Uh, I came with uh, many pro-life leaders to listened to him. And when um, 90 minutes later, without notes, he accepted every question. This was not the man I had come to know in public. Um, mm. You know, Donald Trump was, I used to call Donald Trump the, the Bobby Knight of politics. Mm. He would come out on the basketball court and throw chairs mm-hmm. in his chest. He was stunningly thoughtful and engaging. And from the opening remarks, he was very religious. Uh, Of course, I didn't believe it at first. Here we are in 2020. What Donald Trump has done is he has completely changed 
politics in the United States, the Republican Party doesn't exist anymore as we knew it. Uh, the Democrat Party doesn't exist as we knew it. He is a transformational figure, I believe. He is a transformational figure sent from God, mm. not on his holiness or righteousness, mm. but as his final call and last tool of, of his um, handiwork in, in the world. Mm. And he's not only changed American politics, but he's completely changed uh, the bipolar world that we had grown up in you know, with the Soviet Union, United States. Donald Trump saw the problem of China years ago and was the sole voice against it, the only voice against China, and has now come to speak. If I may, for the readers, given the context, or the listeners, given the context of where we're at, I want to bring our attention to Romans chapter 13. I want to remember what John Paul II uh, said over and over again, be not afraid. And the Lord told us to be not afraid. But here in Romans 13, we find a direct instruction from St. Paul to be afraid. As Lee's going to speak, I'm sure, in the United States, we don't have a king. The sovereign authority is the voting of the people. Hmm. What we are experiencing <clears throat> is a complete corruption, demonic from its core, started in the Democrat Party decades ago. I believe we're in the judgment, the final judgment of our anti-life movement. You cannot rip from the womb 55 million babies mm. and walk mm. around like you aren't going to have judgment. Mm. That's where we're at. Jeff, um, very insightful and just want to read these words of Pope Saint now John Paul II from his visit to Philadelphia on the uh, bicentennial of our nation in 1976. And here at that historic place, he stated, we are now standing in the face of the greatest historical confrontation humanity has gone through. I do not think that wide circles of the American society or wide circles of the Christian community realize this fully. We are now facing the final confrontation between the church and the anti-church of the gospel versus the anti-gospel. This confrontation lies within the plans of divine providence. It is trial, which the whole church and the Polish church in particular must take up. It is a trial of not only our nation and the church, but in a sense, a test of 2,000 years of culture and Christian civilization with all its consequences for human dignity, individual rights, human rights, and the rights of nations. This was uh, obviously decades before we ever anticipated the acceleration uh, in the last three, four years of questioning God's image in mankind and gender, man and woman made in God's image. And if you will, banners woven in the name of tolerance and acceptance, actual violence and unrest, and discovering the levels of that being funded by nefarious forces that are uh, all working right now to really define, if you will, uh, a rather prominent, I say political side, unquestionably. And every single one we must add, as with us, destined to know God, destined for relationship with God, pining for relationship with God. Lee, what were your thoughts about uh, what Jeff just shared? Greg, I really appreciated Jeff's initial point, especially about uh, how President Trump has been like 
or was like uh, is like President Lincoln and how transformative Lincoln was that the country that went into the Civil War wasn't the same one that came out of it uh, in large measure because of uh, Lincoln's leadership. And, and I want, uh, I'll say a couple other words, but I want to focus on, on that initially that uh, like Jeff, uh, during the run up to the 2016 election, um, I was not a supporter of President Trump. Uh, in fact, like Jeff as well, I was a supporter of, uh, of Senator Cruz for, for a lot of reasons, I'm sure many of the same reasons. But then after President Trump became the uh, primary candidate for the Republican Party, I took a, a hard second look at him, uh, frankly, one that was initially very skeptical for a, a lot of reasons. Uh, it, I think primarily because of his uh, public persona and uh, some of the things that he had said over time. And what most influenced me as we led up to the election and then after the election, as I was trying to process what just happened, um, I was influenced uh, by uh, the the editor of First Things Magazine, Rusty Reno is his name. Mm -hmm. And Rusty was writing a series of articles uh, in, his, in his monthly column about what he perceived the election to be about. Um, and then he eventually published those columns and some additional thoughts in a book called Return of the Strong Gods, which which uh, fits a lot of what Jeff was saying. And I'll just tease it out for our listeners. Please. What what Reno described was that the, uh, the President Trump phenomenon or the, the Donald Trump phenomenon more generally was of a piece with uh, a number of other movements uh, throughout the Western world, especially. So we had Brexit about the same time. Uh, there was the election of Viktor Orban in Hungary. Uh, Poland had an election of uh, a more conservative party. Uh, you had uh, responses to uh, these were these were all responses Reno claimed uh, and and realignment politically in the West generally to a confluence number of a number of factors. So some of them were cultural. Uh, so the way that that people in the West, I'll just focus on the United States, lived. Uh, so you mentioned I've got eight kids. My wife and I are still married after 21 years. And and that's that's the way that 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 some Americans live. Uh, it's not the way that other Americans live, and that and that's a definitely a change from what we saw 50 years ago. The, I think the best book on the subject is called Coming Apart, and it's about um, uh, how, how it was a survey of of how Americans lived between 1950 and then I think the book was published around 2010. And in 1950, most people lived pretty much the same way. They might have a Cadillac instead of a Chevy. They might have two bathrooms instead of one bathroom. But most people live basically the same way. They they went to church together. Uh, they they uh, they raised their kids in a certain way, and that and that cultural consensus is no longer the same. Instead, we have this is a generalization, of course. We have two different Americas, two ways of living, and that relates economically. So economically, uh, the people that I rub shoulders with at Princeton University or at, at Harvard Law School, they saw themselves as um, as the natural leaders of the country. And it was, it was, which that itself isn't bad. In fact, in many ways, it's laudable. But but many of them saw themselves as having been trained to to kind of govern uh, the the rest of the people out in the hinterlands who needed mm -hmm. leadership. Mm -hmm. Them, yeah, President Trump was actually powerful evidence, con confirmatory evidence of the lack of their expert leadership. And and where do they get this idea? They get this idea because they've been credentialed through through a credentialing mechanism that that people of a particular class, what what Reno would call the elites. What Jody Bottom in his book, which is now about eight years old, called An Anxious Age, would call the elect, see themselves as the elect, as, as the people who are chosen because of their talents to, to lead the country. And, and they are rewarded handsomely, while many other Americans, i.e. those who vote for President Trump, 
tend to have not been rewarded by the increase, among other things, of globalization. And then there's religion too. So America in 1950, uh, the vast majority of Americans went to church uh, once a week, uh, if not more. And today, uh, church going is a is a is is aligned with economics and cultural significations that the people who are well, the elites or the elect tend not to be church going. They tend not to vote for uh, the Repu Republican candidates, and those who are religious tend to vote for the Republican candidates. And then lastly was the realignment internationally. And and when you look at uh, all of these uh, different influences, they Reno describes them, and I think this is this is true. They describe much of what we see today. And, and it's kind of interesting. Like I don't know if you all have been paying attention to. Uh, there's been the Black Lives Matter movement, and some of the some of the actions actually have kind of puzzled me. Uh, like I don't know if you've seen the videos of there'll be an African American walking down the street, and they'll come come into contact with it with a white person. And I, I saw one video in particular where. Uh, the, the the black person said that the white person had to get on her knees and to kiss the black person's feet. Hmm. Wow. I was stunned that somebody would say that, but I was even more stunned when the, when the other person meekly did it. Wow. And I think what that describes is one of the one of the one of the manifestations of being this is Bottoms language elect is that that you have the right views about in this particular issue. Uh, what they argue is a, a history of, of systemic racism. And so it describes a lot of things that just were hard for me to understand. Why would somebody bow down and kiss a stranger's feet? And and I think that, that cultural divide is an explanation for that. And Donald Trump is a disruptive force politically because he's representing uh, the other Americans who culturally, economically, religiously, uh, and in the international forum live like Americans uh, had previously lived in the 1950s. So I really I, I appreciate Jeff's point. Mm -hmm. I agree on that. I'm happy to talk more about politics, but I wanted to, to let you guide the conversation, Greg. Listening to Lee's comments there, especially the story at the end with the video, like the word that came to my mind was just fear and not a holy fear. It seems as if fear has gripped our nation, mm. gripped our church in many ways, much to my sadness. Um, but Jeff, can you speak to that word fear as you see it playing out in the landscape, um, spiritually, you know, in regards to the life issues, however you want to go with that, but just wanting to direct that back to you. Um, first, I want to say to all the listeners that we're all in the same boat as Greg introduced us that um, I don't know the heart of God, really. And I don't, all I can do is look at the world around me. Um, I think that Black Lives Matter and the woman bowing down to kiss the feet is really the outgrowth of the total collapse of womanhood mm -hmm. in our culture. Hmm. Um, I've done a great deal of work um, with post-abortive women, uh, know many of them. I have uh, known many that have committed suicide, mm -hmm. uh, died of drug overdoses, when we have walking around in our culture for the first time in the history of the world, in Western culture, we have women walking around with artificial chemicals in their bodies after they're, what, 16, 17, 18, mm. uh, until they're through menopause, with chemicals in their body that are designed to stop them from conceiving, disrupting the hormones of their very body created in the image of God the fruitfulness of their wombs shut down, this will drive you insane. 
you know, you don't touch the third rail of American feminism politics, which is contraception, but I'm going to touch it because what we're seeing in Portland and what we're seeing here is a complete societal breakdown from the disobedience to the natural function of the body. Mm. You know, the beauty of Catholicism is its unity between the body, mind, and soul. Right. Uh, as a Protestant convert, I see that. So the Black Lives Matter is really, in, in my opinion, a screen for the breakdown of culture. Can I pause you for just a second, Jeff? Hold your thought, but just for our listeners' sake, please go to Black Lives Matter's site and see explicitly what they stand on. See their ideology spelled out so you know that we're not spinning some angry, hateful rhetoric. We're describing objectively what they speak of and stand on with regard to sexuality, with regard to the nuclear family, et cetera, et cetera. So as as my brother Jeff here continues to speak in Lee, we want to you to know that we want to be anchored in truth, what is, uh, represent people per their own words. So what Jeff is speaking of is validated in their actual self-descriptions. I'm sorry, Jeff, continue. What we want really ultimately is to love one another mm-hmm. in the way our Lord asks us to do so. And, and it's not just the collapse of the feminine body. It's the total collapse of manhood as well. A world that uh, will kill its own mm-hmm. is naturally destined to destroy femininity and masculinity, um, the absence of fathers in the mm-hmm. home. These, these, these uh, men, so-called men that are 30, 35, 40 years old that are running wild in the streets of Seattle and Austin and Portland and New York, um, you'll notice they always come out at night in the dark. Mm-hmm. Quite right. appropriate for Joe Biden to talk about dark and light. But that's really, uh, Black Lives Matter is just the screen. And the poor black men in this country who have no fathers, and as a result of having no father leadership, uh, being driven into a promiscuity that um, robs them of their manhood. Mm. Donald Trump has seen this. Mm. This man is not, you know, Lee and I both agree, he was not somebody we'd want to be pals with in 2016. But I, I'm mesmerized by the transformation that's happening to him Amen. and his family. Yes, yes. Um, you know, it's, it reminds me again of Lincoln. Lincoln um, entered the White House in 1860 as one kind of a man. And when the bullet went through his brain, he was a different kind of man. Mm-hmm. When the story is told many years down the road, and we are able to see, uh, uh, hopefully weaned from the toxic Kool-Aid of the culture that many of us have been exposed to, whether we're watching it, absorbing it or not, it's in the air, it's in the culture, it's in the atmosphere, it affects the way we think. Um, and, And not to know that, not to know that we are influenced by it is a certain kind of grave concern and ignorance. But when the story's told, Uh, and we're sobered up and looking at this, the heroes will be many, and I hate to invoke and appropriate the uh, identity politics thing because it shouldn't matter black or white. They have no contingency on truth or objective is truth. But the heroes will be seen as the Candace Owens and the Larry Elders, very intelligent, thoughtful, prayerful, on-point black leaders who take to task a lot of these things that purport to be in the best interests 
of, of uh, if you will, minorities. But peel back the layers objectively, look at the facts, and I just invite our audience to do that. Look at the facts of what has actually advanced the best interests, the common good, shall we say, Aristotle spoke of flourishing, which actually have advanced and is advancing the, the lives of across the board demographics, but particularly minorities. So this is a part of a key part of this program, just that we would, with humility, explore beyond the narratives, beyond personalities, if you will, to positions, and really examine the rhetoric. Lee, we are accountable for the decisions that we make, particularly in the political marketplace of ideas, and they need to be informed decisions. So I'm going to ask you, can you give us um, a bit of a perspective of the framework? What is the godly Catholic framework for looking at and evaluating political matters? Yeah, thanks, Greg. Uh, so I think the first thing to note is that, at least in our religious tradition, there's not a, a, a blueprint. There's not a, a, a very particularized roadmap about kind of political system that, that Christians must or should live in. There's a long tradition in our tradition of uh, d- d- debating different uh, types of regimes. Uh, so Thomas Aquinas famously said that the best type of regime is a mixed regime that has monarchical, aristocratic, and democratic elements. And and that, that, that I think is generally probably where the consensus lies, but not in those particular examples that, that, uh, that, that St. Thomas gave. So we don't have a specific blueprint that tells us what our regime should look at, what our political system, what our legal system should look like. But instead, what we have are guide points about uh, if we're in a particular type of uh, political system, how should we, in our different roles in that political system, operate? And and our our political system is one that has popular input, popular input in a lot of ways, voting, advocacy, giving money, uh, doing speech, uh, going door to door. And so our, what's our role as, as citizens and in, in a regime where there's significant popular input? And I think what that means is you look back and, 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 and see, well, what is, the, what is the purpose of politics in a, in, a, in a country like ours? And the purpose of politics is choosing the means to pursue the common good with other people in our community who disagree with us, sometimes with good reasons, and sometimes with with poor reasons, and and there's you know a simple example I would say would be uh, thinking of highway regulations that they tend not to be super controversial. Uh, with one caveat, I remember uh, when I was really young, the speed limit on the interstate was 55, and uh, that seemed to make a lot of people angry. But other than kind of unusual situations, uh, th- that's a, a manifestation of we as citizens we we elect people, we call our we call our representatives, we advocate for speed limits or uh, too much safety regulation, not enough safety regulation, too much environmental regulation, not enough environmental regulation. And in most of those kind of discussions and debates, there's a lot of room for reasonable, good faith disagreement. Mm. And so it explains why one of the reasons why politics in a free system like ours has a lot of a uh, lot of debate, sometimes sometimes positive, but oftentimes acrimonious in today's Political environment certainly is not the most acrimonious that we've ever had in our country. And that also includes that this approach to politics as being about choosing the means to the common good with people who disagree with us includes uh, very important and very controversial subjects like abortion. So so is it the case, so I think as a pro-life American, that the best approach that our legal system nationally and locally could take would be to have a prohibition on the taking of unborn human life 
I recognize that that's not practically attainable in the near term and probably not even in the medium term. Hmm. And so what I have to do when I'm in as a citizen and, and, and in any other roles that I take is think about with people who disagree with me, and it could be pro-life folks, right? So I have many pro-life friends who in good faith uh, think that we should immediately pursue a ban on all abortions, full stop. And I respect that judgment. I disagree with that judgment. But then there's also, of course, citizens who in good faith and sometimes in bad faith who are pro-abortion or pro-choice who uh, want to have uh, as much abortion access to abortion as possible. And so in that environment, my my goal as a citizen is to try to pursue and advocate for the position that is practically realize, realizable for my community as it currently stands with an eye towards the ideal, right? So I'm, I'm always aiming for the ideal, but what is it that I can achieve right now? And so politics in our type of system is, is the art of the practical. And one way that I try to think about this, uh, for example, regarding abortion, but also really for other um, uh, issues like presidential selection, it actually providentially goes back to Jeff's invocation of, of President Lincoln was to think about if I were an American citizen in the antebellum era, and one of my positions was that I thought slavery was was unethical, and, may, and my ultimate goal would be I want slavery to be eliminated within the jurisdiction of the United States, but I would probably realize this, this is the position I'm advocating for, I would realize that that was not a practically realizable goal, at least in the in the short term, and probably not in the medium term. Although there certainly were people uh, who would be, I think, figuratively to my to my right, or maybe to my I don't know actually what what side they'd be on, like James Barney, who was a presidential candidate, who was an abolitionist, a more radical abolitionist, who would advocate for let's stop slavery right now, full stop. And then you had people like Abraham Lincoln, and Lincoln, I think, is my paradigm example of a president, at least in this context, of his goal was ultimate extinction. He recognized the practical realities of the situation, where he could push, where he could nudge. Uh, so Lincoln's current position when he was running for office was to limit the spread of slavery, uh, to use federal power where he could, to, to limit that spread, to prevent that spread, and, and maybe to nudge it back a little bit within those states where, where it was at. And so I think the, the summarize what I was saying, Greg, that, that we as citizens have a, have a duty to pursue an ideal, the good ideal, in means that are practically realizable uh, in our current circumstances. And to not let the ideal, I guess the corollary is, to not let the ideal be the enemy of the good things that we can, that we can achieve right now. Don't vote for James Barney, would be my argument, both for Abraham Lincoln. Appreciate that, Lee. And just for some clarification, by the way, Jeff, just you were battling with the bubonic plague, and so I was minimizing the audio. Feel free to click in here. I just want to ask a question. Uh, you had suggested that if we are capable, uh, and I, by that I mean the president in both houses, if we had the capacity either for an amendment or to uh, minimize abortion completely legally, are you suggesting you would not be in favor of that? No, no, no. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I would definitely be in favor of that. I, I just don't think that 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 scenario that you spun, Greg, is going to happen in the short term or even in sure. the medium term. 
And I think obviously, as we're speaking about legal matters, we all have to be mindful that we can put a lot of energy inordinately on things beyond our power, beyond our means. We need to advocate, but uh, the big question looks back on us as husbands and wives. Are we forming cultures of encounter? Are we forming the kind of godly men and women? And I say that that is a much higher priority. I want to press you, Lee, a little bit, and Jeff, invite you to kick in. Um, Maybe, and I appreciate your backdrop, but what I'm going for is as we look at a field of candidates, I do think there's a given framework to evaluate the good. And um, there's a hierarchy of values. For instance, simply life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. One's right to life surpasses another's right to, shall we say, freedom. Going to a stop sign and just about every law we think of is a subordination to the ultimate or higher value of the protection of a life. And if hypothetically respective parties represent each one that, uh, you know, we ought to give the highest regard to the protection of human life over other threats. To put it in sort of a maybe allegorical way, Hitler was not remembered for his economic advances. Hitler was not remembered for, you know, other great things he may have accomplished. We recall him for the horrific advocacy and uh, enactment fuel killing millions of people. And that's our situation, of course, with the unborn. In other words, I'm making the case that it merits the highest of consideration with due note that obviously if such a person who represents the protection of human life has sufficient administrative wherewithal that isn't putting the, the nation, the republic in danger. Is that fair? I don't think anything I said was, was uh, in tension with or disagreed with what you were saying, Greg. I didn't touch in particular on uh, as a, as a citizen, what are the ideals that, that you should strive for in a practically realizable format? Um, and it, it is clearly the case that some goods are more valuable than others, and uh, speed limits are less valuable than, than for example, uh, religious liberty. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so it is the case when we're thinking as citizens, we're thinking about the common good of our community in a practically realizable fashion, and some parts of the common good are, are essential. So, so for example, the dignity of, of the individual members of that, of that community is, is the, is the most important facet of that. And then there are other, uh, means that help us achieve that. So for example, one of the important aspects of individual flourishing, uh, is, uh, the religious liberty of those individuals to pursue, uh, the, the, uh, the, the transcendent, uh, as they, as they best see fit. Mm-hmm. And that has to be prioritized uh, over other things. And in particular, it has to be prioritized. It, it has to be a goal that that there can be disagreement about how we pursue that goal. So my ideal is robust religious liberty for all Americans. And in good faith, and sometimes in bad faith, we'll have debates and discussions with other Americans who, who disagree uh, about how to uh, achieve that goal. Lee, let me be really practical. Following the Democratic Convention and the Republican Convention, looking with a Catholic lens, what takeaways do you have? Okay, that's that's a good question, and and I actually I, I love it, Greg, that you were focusing on the parties and 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 not so much their personalities. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but there's some things about Donald Trump's personality that I actually kind of uh, I think he's like Janice face, where I, I like and dislike at the same time. For sure. So, his bombastic nature is, is in some ways, um, I think, a negative because I would rather have a, uh, a George Washington style president as opposed to a more bombastic president. But at the same time, that, that, kind, of, that kind of large personality also uh, protects the, the lesser among us to, to engage in, 
in, in, in substantive, uh, but also uh, important speech. So uh, what, what would I take away from that? I would look at the party's platforms and I would look at, at the actions of, of the respective candidates and in, 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 in thinking about the important things that, that allow a community to live together well. So we talked about uh, pro-life and, uh, and, and the Republican party has been consistently pro-life. Uh, President Trump has been, um, I, I think it's probably fair to say the, the most pro-life modern president that we've had. And I'll defer to Jeff's uh, thoughts on that. Uh, everything from judges to, uh, to, to tax policy, to, uh, to the briefs that the Department of Justice files in different cases. Religious liberty, uh, so there's been robust protection for religious liberty, uh, kind of in, in lots of really creative ways too. So uh, some, of, some of our listeners may, may not be aware that one of the initiatives by the Trump administration was that there is a, a now an annual conference on religious liberty uh, throughout the world. Hmm. And that State Department makes it a priority in a way that had not been the case before that religious liberty is going to be protected, not just at home, but abroad. Free speech, free speech is another aspect of, of human flourishing uh, in, in reasonable circumstances. So kids maybe have less free speech than, than, than college students, for example. But free speech is under pressure in lots of areas of American life, including in political life, right? Mm -hmm. There are a lot of things that a person isn't supposed to say, or if they do, that they are automatically branded uh, one name or, or another. And so the, the, uh, the, the, the Republican Party and the uh, Trump administration have worked hard in, in spheres of their influence to protect free speech. And then I would say kind of for each of those points and other points that I see the Democratic Party as, as, as not only not protecting the right to life, but, but as pushing against it very strongly, as not only not protecting religious liberty, but as trying to minimize Advance. religious liberty that they see as more valuable. And, uh, and the same, and the same, same with, with free speech and other values as well. Thank you. Jeff, response. The conventions this last week were probably the greatest political media bombshell since 1960, mm -hmm. when the Kennedy-Nixon debates occurred. Everybody that has some sense of political history knows that if you had listened to um, the radio in 1960 debates, <clears throat> Nixon won the debates. If you watch it in television, Kennedy mopped the floor with Nixon because <laughs> of the power of media. Right, right. Donald Trump not only has become a billionaire by being a real estate developer, but he also then became um, the most successful reality show television producer. <laughs> and he knows how to put on a show. So the shutdown of the conventions, which was a basket of lemons turned into a lemon meringue pie for him. He, <laughs> he, I like that. It was absolutely stunning and reflected the transformation of the political parties. I don't believe we have anything that looks at all like the Democrat Party of Hubert Humphrey, John Kennedy, or for sure. Bill, Bill Clinton. We also don't have anything that looks at all yep. like the Republican yep. Party of George Bush. Yep. It's gone. It's mm -hmm. gone forever. We have a new generation coming behind us. Now, let's try this question out on our listeners. It's 1939. I'm living in uh, London, and I'm hearing that uh, the Third Reich is killing, killing Jews. Mm. And my response is, you know, I'm personally against the killing of Jews. 
But I don't see why I should tell Germans what they should do with their own free choice. Mm -hmm. This is exactly where we're at. And Great Britain did not want that war, but it was forced on them. And this is where we're at. Um, uh, Lee knows my great respect for his scholarly approach, and he knows much more than I ever will on these issues. But we're at the beginning of, of a violent war. It's not going to be a civil war because you need a, for a civil war, you need, you know, geography and armies that can take positions of defense and offense. But all you have to do is look at Seattle and Portland mm-hmm. and you understand they're burning hatred for anything and everything that is not anarchy. They don't even have an agenda. Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> you know, when, when we go to mass, we ask that, you know, we confess that we want forgiveness for the sins we've committed and those that we have omitted. The Democrat Party is willfully uh, omitting the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Republican Party has done it too. And this is one of the things that happened with Right to Life Action Coalition in Ohio is mm. that we could no longer allow the pro-life movement to become um, the bastard child of the Republican Party, that they could just, you know, the rhinos could just use the pro-life movement to get elected, but not really do anything mm-hmm. legislatively to stand up against it. Um, Lee's, Lee recommended a book about coming apart, and that's really where we're at. It, it looks very much to me like 68. It's it's much more like, it's not 1968, it's it's much more like 1860. Um, we're losing the culture we were born into. And I might say, too, the Catholic Church is part of this. I mean, I went <clears throat> on Easter Sunday uh, as we all were shut down by the Kasich DeWine administration. And I use that term uh, because it fits. It's John Kasich and Mike DeWine who, uh, you know, use the pro-life banner, but then... Um, don't really live it out mm-hmm. in significant uh, ways for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so it's Easter Sunday, two thirty, And of course we had no mass for the first time uh, since, since I, gosh, I don't know, since, Ever. since the Lord. <laughs> right. Yeah. I went over to pray at the church and I won't mention what church I go to, which parish I'm part of, but I walked up at the front doors at 2.30 in the afternoon. The doors are locked on Easter mm. Sunday. Heartbreaking. Quite some, yeah, well, quite symbolic of where we're at. Right. And, you know, finally, let me, one, more, one more response. It's not just the politicians. Um, religion is, you know, clearly religion is downstream from politics. Politics is downstream from culture. And the Catholic Church is downstream from religion. We, we have to remember that every single bishop but one in, in, in England apostatized. Hmm. When push came to shove, Catholic England was destroyed, and it was destroyed with the full consent of the bishops. Hmm. Right. Spot on, Jeff and, and Lee. Folks, you're tuning in to Ignite Radio Live. I might describe this 
is uh, the title is What the Heaven is Going On, taking uh, Romans 5.20, for where sin abounds, grace abounds more. We're not going to give the enemy the credit of being the one that's guiding the show. The big show is being guided by the one Lord, Latin root dome. He has dominion. He is overall. We're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. And in the midst of these, this present darkness and these difficulties, God has always had from the very beginning of time the upper hand, and we are uh, meant to look at this, appraise these things from the vantage of him who is Lord and victorious. And I would even shift this in these last moments of this wonderful conversation for more to follow, hopefully in the next couple months leading up to this election. But I shift this in the direction of asking, you know, how do we assume the inheritance that God has called us to by virtue of baptism to take up the sword of righteousness, to enter the battle, Ephesians 6, 12? How do we do this? And I might suggest instead of just pointing the finger, we need to, we got to point out those areas of, of conflict and concern. And I might say this boldly, that the world is tripping over the low bar set by the church. I'll say it again. The world is tripping over the low bar set by the church. I think key to revival is recognizing the very low bar image and vision that we have for marriage, for family, for sacrament. And in the depths of our souls, we've been fashioned, right, for an excellence, a fullness, without which we're languishing. Everybody listening right now, myself included, until we have the audacity to break through and seek the Holy Spirit to fan that flame and see the truth that we've been destined for, I don't care what we're doing. I don't care what physical or material or professional accomplishments we make. We're going to be living in darkness. We're going to be experiencing the effects of that darkness. So part of this, I want your comments on Jeff and uh, Lee, is, you know, how do we more fully put in front of us that light and live and walk in it as occasions of inspiring, if you will, those around us to know that um, yeah. that there is power in Christ's life, death, and resurrection and Pentecost, that this is not meant to be such, just a conceptual, conceptual, noetic ascent of knowledge of truth, but to know him who is truth, to manifest his kingdom so that, dare I say, our prayer uh, our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your thoughts. Let's begin with Lee. Thanks, uh, Greg. Um, that, that's a, in some ways it's tough, in some ways it's easy. So I think the, the prescription for how, how we as Christians uh, do that uh, is, 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 is longstanding, that we have a robust prayer life, both as individuals and then our, our domestic churches. Uh, we, we, uh, we, we, participate in the sacraments on a regular basis, uh, especially sacraments that, that provide the grace to, to repair and to rebuild the relationships in, in our families. And, and so there's, there's, the, there's the religious aspect, which is an exclusive what I'm gonna say next. In fact, I think it's, it follows from, and that's our, our public actions. And, uh, and so all of us have uh, time, talent, and treasure uh, given by God in different quantities and different aspects. We have to identify what those are and then, and then work towards, uh, in our spheres of influence, implementing those in our lives. And, uh, and, and it can be lots of things. I'll just give one anecdote. So in, in my life, of course, I've got, I've got children. And so education has been important to, to Elizabeth and I. And we've worked hard in lots of different capacities to try and provide uh, great educational options for, for our kids. And that, that's included uh, homeschooling and working with other homeschooling families. That's including uh, Catholic schooling and working with our local parish school, and that's included other options as well, where we, we spend a lot of time, including Northwest Ohio Classical Academy. The goal of trying to find ways to bring to bear our time, talent, and treasure in a way that enriches not just our own family, but 
our community and then hopefully ultimately uh, even broader than that. For the benefit of our listeners, uh, just a mini shout out to NOCA, Northwest Ohio Classical Academy. Lee is one of the founders, certainly principal driver with his wife. It is an extension of Hillsdale College, where I'm proud my brother's a professor there and a son is a student there. And uh, really, it is a phenomenal virtue formation uh, atmosphere and purpose, uh, the result of which is, is you know, fully human excellence. I just really encourage all many educational options. I'm not downplaying others, but I would say give NOCA a look as homeschoolers, Steph and I ourselves. There's a lot of resonance with what we have done with our children, with Mother of Divine Grace. By the way, folks, there was a phenomenal conversation with Denise DeRocher a few episodes back talking about homeschooling. Why not? Really wanting to address those objections, especially in this climate of uncertainty and doubt and digitization, if you will, of education. Check it out. Um, but thank you, Lee, for that. Jeff? Well, I think one of the things we need to look at, too, is is how it's not just in the political realm, but within the Catholic Church. Um, quite fascinating, really, to look at the um, public religious presentation of Donald Trump and Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi. Uh, Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi for their entire political lives have made have made it a point to speak of their Catholicism. Um, but anybody that objectively looks at what they are would have to say not only are they not Catholic in the way they live their lives, um, but they're definitively anti-Catholic, yes. anti-Christian, yes. mm-hmm. anti-life, anti-family, anti-human sexuality. Unfortunately, then, yes. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody can deny that. And yet we have many, many leaders in the Catholic Church that say, well, you know, they care for the they care for the poor. Mm-hmm. And you look at Donald Trump, and I think, you know, one of the objections that uh, that I had was his public persona. Mm-hmm. But let's let's look at the public persona now that has transpired in four years. Uh does the man walk across the street from the White House with a Bible and try to stop a burning church? Yes. Does the man with his wife go to pray uh, at the St. John Paul Center? Mm-hmm. Yes. Does he honor God? Yes. As chairman of the Republic, as the head of the Republican Party, what did we see in the convention? I was just absolutely mesmerized with the religious tones of the yep. convention. Yep. Abby Johnson. It. Yeah, and we closed the convention with Ave Maria. Right. Tell me that wasn't beautiful. Right? Yeah. Uh, stunning. One person after another who honored God. Um, does the man love his wife mm-hmm. publicly? Does he honor her publicly? <clears throat> Do his children stand up and give him great laud? Does he love the country? Does he honor Christ every single time he has an opportunity to do so? Yes, he does. So what don't we like about Donald Trump? that he was a playboy 35 years ago? Well, I'm very sorry to tell you, um, my life has not been perfect. <laughs> we just you know, we just recently in our diocese had a scandal down in Finley. I don't know if the priest is guilty, but if you read the complaint and you read the FBI investigation, it's absolutely horrifying. Mm-hmm. Now, what, what should be our response as Catholic citizens to that kind of scandal? I know what my response is. My response is it strikes the fear of God in me. Mm. You know, what yes. that 
it, it calls me to look at the depravity of my own living and how much without the mercy and blood of Christ, I would be destined to hell. We can't believe that political parties could ever be doing the things that they're doing. Um, I think Donald Trump is a Constantine figure in some ways, meaning he's, he's, he's not the perfect Christian, but has the man spiritually grown in the office and has the man consistently stood up for Christ? Uh, I believe he has. Yes, mm -hmm. And I think, yes. I, I think Donald Trump, and one final thing, if, if somebody in the listening audience is saying, well, you know, I don't like his personality and his bombastics and his tweets, mm -hmm. but I can't vote for Joe Biden either because of his position. Well, we started with Romans 13 and sovereignty is vested in the people in this country. And a lot of blood by a lot of people that wanted to live was spilled for our right to vote. Mm -hmm. Failing to vote is a coward's way out and it's the sin of omission. You don't have the opportunity in this crisis to not vote. You must vote and you have to choose. Are you gonna vote for Donald Trump or are you gonna vote for Joe Biden? Mm -hmm. On the binary political landscape, there are other options and conscience might direct us to those, but practically it's going to be one or the other. It's gonna be one platform or the other. Set the personalities aside. It's gonna be a vote to protect human life from conception to natural death, to affirm religious freedom, to affirm uh, these qualities that we've, we, we realize are so important or not. So blessed to have you, Lee Strang and Jeff Barefoot to be with us. I would just maybe leave our audience with the awareness of something that kind of emerged even before the George Floyd thing. And that was that our identity, our core identity, ought not be reduced to lesser things. So black, white, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, atheist, all those, I don't want to dismiss that they're valuable and maybe to understand facets of who we are. But our deepest identity is we are sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ, whether we affirm that or not, as the sun is bright and hot, whether we think it or not, the truth of our nature and the capacity to live in that fullness is the degree to which we recognize that, live in it, and walk in it. And let me say um, that to some extent, this issue of the church awakening and self-reform, which many godly priests, cardinals, bishops, God bless uh, Vigano for his heroic articulation of many of these things, so many commentators, Cardinal Seurat, who are bringing in front of us, Monsignor Pope, God bless you for having the audacity to open up the doors to the mess that lies hidden beneath and invites us to self-reform, repentance, all of that. Yes, I just want to guess, point out the reality that one of the strongholds that stands in the way of Orthodox Catholics, which is many, maybe many of us listening, one of the strongholds that keeps us from operating and exhibiting the kingdom, just invite us to think about this at the end of this program, is not ritual, which is given by Christ to literally participate in him, but ritualism. A reduction of this phenomenal faith we have to checklist, go through the motions, connect the dots, forms versus a Picasso, flush, a Rembrandt, flush with color and life and light. Ritualism versus ritual. Pope Benedict put it so clearly in the Jesus of Nazareth trilogy that it's relationship. 
at the heart of ritual, relationship at the heart of religion. It is played out more consequentially in our homes than on any political stage in any halls of Congress. It's questions such as this. When is the last time, Dad and Mom, you gathered your family together to meaningfully talk and pray, to share from the heart the reality of God alive in us, to live our nature as image, icons of the Trinity? When's the last time you made that happen? Those are the consequential kind of questions that we have to consider. And to that end, we, uh, Steph and I and our listeners here and others who've been involved, really urge you to please check out ilovemyfamily.us. This week begins another seven-week journey to get people in the seat and discover the transforming power of husband and wife with kids, making it a priority, putting that flag in the sand, encountering this vital grace of God, pouring forth into our marriages and families, the transforming effect that it has. We can say this now over seven years. Families that do this, that recognize this, again, presupposing orthodoxy, presupposing the grace of the sacraments, families that recognize this value are seeing tremendous growth, encouragement, and transformation. And I also want to direct you to something called OneHeartOneCity.us. OneHeartOneCity.us. It is a union of Catholics, non-Catholic Christians, united in seeking to bring the presence of Christ, the love of Christ, to public places. That word ecclesia, church, it doesn't mean just to gather. It means to go. It means to go to places and have confidence in the power of God to transform other lives, to make them aware of their nature and love. I know it's a long monologue from Greg. You guys are now used to it at this point. But so blessed to have you, Lee and Jeff. We love you guys. We pray for blessings on the Strang family as you're anticipating the birth, the revelation of the beautiful little Strang child number eight. And all of you out there who are struggling in any way, just we declare God's love. We declare God's love and his grace surrounding you in your marriage and family and home, that there is transformation and God invites us to experience that. Let's lift up our Pope. Let's lift up our Bishop Thomas, who's a wonderful man of God, who's faced with difficult challenges. Let's lift up our priests. But most importantly, let's have the audacity to see the truth that Christ calls us to and to live in it fully. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. God bless you.